Would you take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to the letter of 1 Peter. If you are a guest with us this morning, we have been going verse by verse since we planted this church in August 15th of last year through the letter of 1 Peter. We started about midway through chapter 2, picking up where we left off with our sending church. And today we find ourselves beginning chapter 3. I'll begin reading chapter 3, and I'll read verses 1 through 6, though we'll be looking only at verses 1 and 2 today. This is the word of the Lord. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let's ask God's blessing on our time. Well, Father, we come to this hour every week and our souls are hungry. We need food from your word. Your word is what nourishes us. And it is your spirit who makes us able to take in your word and make it profitable for our souls. We ask this morning that the spirit would attend this time, that the words that I would say would not only challenge, but comfort. And that your sheep, your people would remember that because of Jesus' death on the cross, they are by your power and by your spirit in obedience to the word, able to live in ways that please you. Encourage us all this morning as we study. May our worship continue. To God alone be the glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, in 2005, at the highly accredited Kenyon College in central Ohio, a commencement speech was delivered to the graduating class by American author David Foster Wallace. The speech was titled, This is Water, and has since been touted as one of the greatest commencement speeches of all time. Wallace opens his address with a story of two fish swimming together, and when they pass an older fish swimming the opposite direction. This older fish calls out to the younger two and says, Good morning, boys. How's the water? The two younger fish continue swimming along for a while. When one of them asks the other, and I've edited a little bit here for our sake, what in tarnation is water? 
Well, Wallace utilizes this didactic little parabolish story to prove a point. But it's not the one his audience expects. He doesn't paint himself as the wise older fish getting ready to give instruction to those that are going to graduate and go out into the world. But instead, he reminds his hearers that the most obvious important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. We find ourselves in a text like that this morning. Wallace's main concern is with what he calls blind certainty, a closed-mindedness that amounts to an imprisonment so total that the prisoner doesn't even know that he's locked up. Wallace declares to these graduates that their bent as human beings is this blind certainty and that they are swimming in it all the time. It's very interesting. He's an atheist too, and yet he's encouraging them towards some kind of moral standard. Well, as he concludes, his hearers, like the fish in the story, might have to go around saying to themselves that their selfish, mean, nasty bent is like the fish who needs to go around saying to itself, I'm swimming in water. This is water. This is water. Now, what does that story and that commencement speech have to do with 1 Peter 3 and women being in submission to their husbands? I could use this as a springboard to talk to you about the long reign of feminism in the West and that for all of our lives, we have been swimming in it. And that is true. I've mentioned this often over the last several months. Or what about how this dominatrix mentality has affected Christian women and Christian men in our homes, in our churches, our businesses, so on and so forth. This also is true. But Peter here is aiming for heart change. He wants to encourage Christian wives, as he did the slaves and the citizens he's previously spoken to, that their conduct has great power as it is working. My concern for our sisters this morning is this blind certainty, this unteachable spirit, this feigned humility and submission that might look like conformity to Christ, but inwardly, it is rebellion to God. And there is more than one way to be submissive and rebellious. The feminazi might need a talking to about her golem-like heart, but so does the militant red pill good girl who's so eager for submission that she steps outside of her husband's authority to make sure everybody else is doing the right thing. Both need Jesus. Both need humility. And both have a ways to go in learning biblical submission. Sisters, I ask you this morning, do you find yourself somewhere in that spectrum? Somewhere in the spectrum of complete autonomy and radical disobedience to such conformity that you found a way to lead apart from the authority of your husband. Well, Peter, in this section, tells the wives what he intends for them, what his desire is for them. He says that all wives should submit to their husbands, even if, in the worst case scenario, Their husband is an unbeliever. In that case, and really we could say in any case, you can win 
a disobedient or lost husband to obedience to Christ without words. A woman's reverent, pure conduct has the power to soften a hard-hearted man. And you probably knew that before we came in this morning. You probably knew. That's pretty simple. That seems very straightforward from the text. But there are some questions the text presents us with as we look at it. For example, the very first word. In the ESV, it says likewise. Also the KJV and the New King James Version. The NIV, Christian Standard Bible, and New American Standard Bible use the word or use the phrase in the same way. The Young's literal translation says in like manner. So the question I have is how are women to submit to their husbands as those Peter has previously talked about? The slaves, the citizens, how are they to do this? Is he saying that women should submit to their husbands if their husbands require them to sin? What if they refuse to obey their husbands as the slaves might have refused their masters and were beaten for it? We can say that this is a different kind of relationship. Peter is describing a different reality here as he talks to the wives. First of all, a wife is in covenant with her husband. She is in covenant with her husband. They are accountable to God to love their spouse's body as their own. Peter nowhere suggests that a wife should submit to physical harm from her husband. Masters were not even commanded to beat their slaves for doing wrong. That's just a reality that Peter expected they would encounter during that time. Let's be clear up front. Wives, and employees for that matter, are under no biblical command or obligation to submit to domestic violence. I'll say that again. Wives and employees are under no biblical command or obligation to bear up under domestic violence. Now, I'm using the, the term domestic violence for a reason. I could have said abuse, but that is a really squishy word today, and we need to be precise with our language. It's far too squishy to be helpful, so I'm choosing that term domestic violence. Physical abuse is always inappropriate, and if a wife or an employee is being physically harmed, hear it from your pastor, you need to call the police. You need to call the police, and then you need to call the elders. And we will get involved, and we will take what means are necessary to straighten the situation out. But I do want you to notice a pattern here. What has Peter been saying to this point? As he's talked to all Christians towards the middle of chapter 2, and then he spoke to citizens of a government, and then he spoke to slaves, he's given us three things again and again and again that he keeps hitting on. Three ideas over and over and over. And this will get us to what he means by likewise. First of all, he's used this Greek term, hupotasso, which is to submit. And I'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a minute. Second, he's also used the word conduct, that Greek word anastrophe that we talked about, that good conduct that has the power to soften the hearts of even the most hard-hearted. And then finally, he's talked about the fear of God. Now, I want to put all three of those together for you very plainly in the verses in which Peter's talked about them. I'll try and do this briefly. He says to Christian citizens, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. For such is the will of God that by doing good, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
and fear God. You see that in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. To household slaves, Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Remember when we went through that passage, he was speaking of fear of God. Being mindful of God. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this finds favor with God. You see the same pattern. Submit, fear of God, doing good, good conduct. And here in our passage today, wives, in the same way you wives be subject to your own husbands. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives as they observe your pure conduct with fear. You see all three of those elements there. And Peter is saying the same thing again to the wives as he said to the citizens and to the slaves. Your conduct matters. Your fear of God compels you to do what is right, and that is to submit to who God has put over you. The glad assumption of your place in God's kingdom, in God's kingdom work on earth, is also his means of ushering in the kingdom of heaven. Let me say that again. The glad assumption of your place in God's kingdom work on earth is also his means of ushering in the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, we here at Christ the King are proclaiming a kingdom. Kingdom makes no sense without subjects. Absolutely no sense. It makes no sense to go around proclaiming a kingdom if we, as those in the kingdom, were to live as if we had no king. We have a king, and you can take it to the bank. There is no more powerful place in your king's kingdom than for you to be in the place that he designed you to be. There is no more powerful place for you to be than right where God designed you to be, in your nature and by his decree, where he has set you in the world, the person that he made you to be and the place in life that he set you in. Notice Peter only addresses or has at this point addressed subordinates. He's talked to citizens, he's talked to slaves, and he's talked to wives. Why at this point has he not talked to governors, masters, and husbands? Now we know he'll talk to husbands in the last verse of this section in verse 7. Was Peter's church primarily slaves and women? Well, Is he making a comparison between the vulnerable and the church? That's something that's emphasized very heavily today. Talk about these power structures. Talk about people that are oppressed, oppressors, and all this kind of dichotomy that we've got. And that's something that you hear a lot about today. Is this because God uses the weak to shame the strong? That much is true. Know this, brothers and sisters. Rule is most visible In the ruled. Rule is most visible in the ruled. In order for the world to see God's reign in heaven on earth, we exemplify that in our attitudes and our actions everywhere that He's placed us. Fertile gardens mean the death of seeds. Something has to go down in order for something to come up. Kingdoms are established through crosses. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, we expect Peter to address all the areas that we think will actually turn the society the way that it's supposed to be. If you just talk to the emperor, if you talk to the governors, why don't you talk to those slave masters, those household masters? Why don't you give those husbands a talking to? And yet, we don't see that the kingdom of God is always upside down from what we expect. 
it's always from the bottom working its way up. It's always from the soil to flower and fruit. That's the way the kingdom of God is grown. And he speaks here to the women. Ladies, what beautiful promises God has given you in these passages. What amazing truth that you get to live in and see God change the world through the way that he created you to be. Well, Peter said in, verse two, or in chapter 2, verse 12, and this is his overarching theme for this entire section, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, now you know the likewise. Let's talk about wives submitting or being subject to their own husbands. But before I do that, I want to speak briefly about to whom the wives should be in subjection. Of course, that is here in the text, you see their own husbands, not any man, but the man that is over them. Before a husband, this is a father. And after marriage, she is to be subject to her own husband. In order to understand submission, ladies, you must first understand patriarchy. This is a really nasty term in our world today. But it is a beautiful term in which God describes in His Word how He designed the world to be cared for. In order to understand why a wife should submit, she must first see to whom. The word patriarchy is made up of two words. Pater in the Greek means father, and arche means rule. Literally, patriarchy means father rule. It is not the rule of the father and the mother with father holding the tiebreaker in case there's a disagreement. It is the authority of the father, a real rule over the household that binds and looses, that leads and sustains, that directs and commands. It is this kind of talking that most frequently gets the world's blood boiling. And they have been suppressing this truth for a long time. But the world, beloved, only functions on a patriarchy. It only functions on father rule. In their book, It's Good to Be a Man, Michael Foster and non-tenant state that patriarchy is inevitable. Patriarchy is inevitable. The creator and sustainer of all things, God himself, is a father. When we pray in our Lord's Prayer, which he taught us to pray, we say, Father, We speak to the patriarch of the universe. How could the universe operate under any other system? It operates under the system that God designed it to, the one in which he rules, and that is the system of patriarchy. Years ago, I read a novel. It was a historical fiction novel called One Second After. It was a story about what might happen in a world in which an EMP, that's an electromagnetic pulse, was set off in the atmosphere and it totally destroyed all of the electronic networks in a society. What would happen if we had no access to electronics anymore? Well, people would have trouble getting food. People would have trouble getting medicine. You wouldn't be able to use your car anymore. You wouldn't certainly be able to turn on the TV or a coffee pot, which would drive people nuts, right? You would have all sorts of problems to deal with, but one of the things that the author of this book brings out really well is as soon as the world is turned upside down and all of the structures that are 
holding things together ever so fragilely, comes apart, the world reverts to a patriarchy. Immediately after this EMP is set off and people figure out what's going on, gangs begin to form, men begin to coalesce into groups and start to move through towns vying for resources, using women, taking advantage of women, killing women, killing children, killing weaker men. Now, this is evil. It's the heart of man full of sin that would promote something like this. But men in those scenarios are acting according to nature. They were meant to rule. They were meant to lead. They were not meant to kill, pillage, plunder, rape, none of that. But when all that we see around us that's holding up this veil of effeminacy, this feminine rule that we see so mightily in our culture right now, when all of that falls apart, our eyes are open, the blinders are removed, and we see the world functions on a patriarchy. God created man in his image and gave them the task to take dominion. Doug Wilson says, masculinity is authoritative. And the scriptures teach that authority flows to those who take responsibility and it flees from those who seek to avoid it. It is in a man's very created nature to lead. He put, that is the father, the man in the garden to care for and protect it. He gave the woman to help the man fulfill this task. As non-tenant says, both the husband and the wife are under a mission. The husband's rule is service as ruler and the wife's role is service as helper. The husband's role is service as ruler and the wife's role is service as helper. If the dominion mandate is to be fulfilled, men must rule and women must support those men in their mission to take dominion. Now, I know you've all heard the tropes about patriarchy, but this is a gift from God for our world. It is a curse of God when women rule. The Bible reveals this. It's very plain. But when men rule, and rule rightly, it is the blessing of God on any society. And this is the context, ladies, in which Peter is asking you to consider your submission to your husband. Look at what he says. Wives, be subject or submit to your own husbands. Peter has no veiled message here. There's not cryptic language used here. You might wonder, Chris, what does it say in the Greek? The same thing it says in English. (laughs) Wives, submit to your own husbands. You're to be subject to your husband regardless of his faith, regardless of what he believes. Think of submission in terms of submission. I heard this this week on a podcast. I thought it was excellent. Think of it as submission or undermission. Non-tenant again. We often think of submission in terms of the wife's obeying when she doesn't want to. I didn't want to do that, and I obeyed, and I followed. So, yay, I submitted. I obeyed God. But it's not about, this is tenant against speaking, it's not about the husband asserting himself over the wife, but the husband being the responsible to find the best way to achieve the mission and the wife accepting him and supporting him in that. That's the full-orbed picture of submission. It's not, well, when I don't want to obey, I obey. That means I'm submitting in those moments. It's at every moment. The big picture mission of dominion 
that the men have been called to take with their wives. The command was given to both. But they both have a duty and a role because of their created natures to fulfill that mission in a certain way. The men to lead, the women to assist. That is the whole idea of submission. The Amplified Bible describes submission in this way. It says, Wives, subordinate yourselves as being secondary to and dependent on your husbands and adapt yourselves to them. Now we hear a word secondary and our ears start to ring. Now wait a second. That makes me seem like I'm less important. I'm of less value than a man. Brothers and sisters, we as Christians do not believe in the religion of the Muslims. We do not believe in the Islamic religion where women are thought of as less value than men. They are of equal value with men, but you must think in terms of rank. In this idea of men and women being equal, there is a leader and there is someone who follows. That's what the Amplified Bible means when it says, consider yourself secondary to, consider yourself his support, his helper. There's a, an old tale of Scottish fishermen's wives who used to assist their husbands in making the journey to their boat. And in order to, for the wife to be submissive and help her husband, she would actually get her husband on her back and carry him all the way from the house to the boat, okay? Now, guys don't get any ideas, okay? Um, that may sound funny, but what's really interesting about the story is that this was a life or death situation. Right? This wasn't like the game of lava that the kids play and don't touch the lava, right? I mean, because Scotland is such a well-watered area and it's also a very cold area, if the man were to walk out to his boat in the morning and his socks would get wet and he would be all day fishing on the lake, his feet would get cold, he could catch pneumonia and he could die. And so what did his wife do? She carried him out to the boat, dry feet, walked back, heated herself, and that was the way that she served her husband. She considered herself subordinate, the helper, one who cares for her husband and helps fulfill the mission. You remember that I've said in the past, submission is accepting and taking your God-commanded place in the world, done voluntarily and with joy. And ladies, this is, as I've said many times, exactly what you were made for. Let's look at this definition in the context of the women in our church. First of all, ladies, I want to encourage you to accept your place. As a wife, you must agree with God that this is not just your role, but also your nature. He created you to be subordinate and help your husband. Presbyterian theologian Benjamin Palmer once said, and I've read this before, the woman is not less equipped for her station by the qualities which distinguish her. She is endued with grace and beauty, to win rather than subdue, above all crowned with a sense of dependence out of which submission springs as an instinct. I think that's a very helpful definition. Sisters, you've been lied to all of your lives. You've been told that submission is one of those things that you just have to do. It's part of God's plan. Know your role. Close your mouth. But it's in your very nature to depend on Him a father, a husband, and from that dependence naturally flows God-pleasing submission. The fall has caused your desire to be against your husband. Remember that was part of the curse. 
God told Eve, your desire will be against him. That means in opposition to him. It even implies that she would want to rule over him. But God's curse didn't involve the man ruling over the woman, except out of harshness and evil, which is exactly why Paul reverses that in Ephesians, where he says, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. He's undoing the curse through the power of the Holy Spirit to say, husbands, don't treat them harshly, but love them. Wives, don't try and take the authority, but submit. Ladies, I would encourage you not just to accept the place that God's give you, but take that place. Actively move into your role as helper to your husband. Nowhere in the scriptures are men commanded to force their wives to submit. Let me say that again. Nowhere in the scriptures are men commanded to force their wives to submit. That would not be submission. That would be subjugation. And then we would be back in chapter 2 in the context of slavery. But I would also say, nowhere in the scripture does God expect women to do anything else. This is exactly what he expects of his daughters, daughters of the king of the universe. This is where the term voluntary comes in. Sisters, God loves a cheerful giver. He's not a fan of compulsion. He doesn't wink at reluctance. Let me ask you a question. Is it your husband's job as the authority in the home to maintain control and remind you and the children if you step out of your place? Yes, it is. That is his duty. But he can't make you. He can't force you to do it. The command of Scripture lays on you. God's Word says, Wives, this is what I want for you. This is my command. Let me ask you another question, ladies. On Judgment Day, Who will answer to God for the fruit that your husband could not produce because of your unwillingness or hard-heartedness which limited his service? Consider well. I would encourage you, ladies, not just to accept your place and not just take your place voluntarily, but do it with joy. Don't just accept it. Don't just take it. But be the helper suitable with joy. Listen to the Proverbs. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. Better to live on the corner of a roof than to share a whole house with a nagging wife. Ladies, you might be thinking, but you don't know my husband. He's lazy. He's selfish. He only thinks of himself. He never looks after me. When will he look after me? When will he care about our children's schooling? When will he plan us a family vacation? When will he start leading a family devotional time? When will he stay awake in church? Or at least listen when Chris is speaking to the men. He wants to lead. If everyone knew how bad he was at home, they wouldn't think so much of him. Nobody knows. Nobody understands. Those thoughts are repulsive, aren't they? That makes me feel like I'm sure that old woman felt when she saw Princess Buttercup presented as Humperdinck's bride, right? Boo. Boo. This isn't how the Bible describes Christian women, women of virtue, noble women. Listen to how the Bible describes this woman. Just a few verses, also from Proverbs. She looks well to the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. 
Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. We'll be there next week. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the produce of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. Ladies, win him to a higher obedience with your joy-filled obedience. Win him to a higher obedience with your joy-filled obedience. Sisters, understand that joy may not come before you act. You may have to take the initiative. You may have to move for God in obedience to God before the joy comes flowing in. I've told you the story before of Corrie ten Boom and how she went around preaching forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness after she had been released from the concentration camp. And then she was put in a situation where she had to offer forgiveness to one of the men who had held her captive. And it was only in extending her hand in faith that God would help her love this man, that she found the love, she found the joy to truly forgive, to truly let go, to truly be set free. Let me give you girls some practical advice. Sisters, consider. What is the mission statement of your family? What is your family's mission statement? I know that may sound a little fundamental, but if you were to consider what is our goal as a family, as the Haddocks, as the Wrights, as the Blowers, what, what, was, what would be our family's goal? What is our family on mission to do? Now, my brothers, if your wife cannot answer that question with any clarity... You've got some work to do. We need to come up as a family with a mission. What is our mission? What is our statement? Please bear with me in this. You are both on mission for God. So what is your mission? The husband to take dominion for the glory of Jesus and the wife to assist him in this task. Think in terms of creating a mission statement together, husband and wife, where you consider gifts and talents in your family. How can we best serve God with what we have? Consider how your mission would include a local impact. We want to be known for our Christian influence in the community in which God has placed us. Think long-term impact. We're going to leave an inheritance to our children's children. Think limited scope. We would like to start a Christian business within the next five years something that you're working towards, something that you're aiming to achieve. And think in terms of people. Remember, the mission of dominion is about people. Go into all the world and make disciples. He said, go to make disciples. Our business endeavors, our government influence, our families, all of it is to promote the kingdom of Jesus through the mission of people through the gospel which changes people. The mission is not about stuff, though stuff will be needed to accomplish it. It has everything to do with people. And brothers, remember, that starts with the people in our own house. You might say, but I don't want to limit God. I don't, I don't want to write a mission statement. What if it needs to change? Well, you can change it. Use an eraser. Write it down with pencil. Edit it. Look at it together. Go over it together. My friend Ed Rosen says, if you aim at nothing, you're bound to hit it every time. What is your mission? Brothers, 
for your wife to be helped, to be submissive and supportive to you, it makes a world of difference for her to know where your family's going. For men who often change the standard over and over and over again, you can see why this could be very frustrating. Now, a woman is still commanded to submit, even to a man like that. But, brothers, if we're going to lead well, what is our mission? And that mission will hold both of you accountable to what you sense the Lord is doing in your family. Wives, regardless of how he behaves, follow and support him with joy. Remember, I've said domestic violence is completely unacceptable every time. But Chris, what if he's a poor leader? You don't know my husband. He's kind of a schmutz, right? Follow and support him anyway. But what if he were to lead me into sin? Now, this is a really interesting pastoral question to answer. You think that's an easy one. Like, oh, Chris, you're, you're just supposed to tell women to never follow their husbands into sin, right? I mean, you would never, Paul would have never told a woman to follow her husband into sin. Now, let's say for a minute that the husband was a businessman. And, um, and he asked his wife to go out with one of his business partners who's trying to close a deal with and um, maybe sweeten the deal. Okay, now that's a little repulsive. If you could just imagine a situation like that, we all think that's, that's awful. You would never encourage someone to do that. Okay, let's dial it down a bit. Let's say that the husband doesn't do a good job of consistently leading family worship. Instead, he says, you know what, kids, let's get some board games out tonight. I want to play some board games. Or, you know what, I'd rather go watch TV. Y'all do whatever you want. Mom, if you want to lead devotionals, that's fine, but I'm out of here. And the wife's response then is to declare to the whole household, to her children, and everyone within earshot, we're not going to follow him. He's a bad leader. We're going to do what God wants in this house, and I'll lead you children if he won't. Now, what has she done? Not only has she undermined her husband's leadership, she's undermined her own. She's undermined her own. No, a woman should not follow her husband into sin. But she also must be careful that she doesn't become the final arbiter of every instance of sin in her house. Remember, the slaves were to release their case to God. Jesus released his case to God. And ladies, there's going to be all sorts of things that frustrate you in your household that he does and you wish he'd do better. You submit your case to God and trust God to act. A wife rebelling against him for the sake of the Lord is undermining not only his influence, but the influence that she has in her home. Now to sum up, all of you being like-minded, sympathetic, brotherly, tender-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. This is Peter's command, just a few verses from where we are now in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. If your husband is not leading or he is being dishonored or neglected, talk to God first. Please take it to the Lord. And then, yes, there will be an appropriate time to sit down and encourage him, to ask questions of him, to see where he's coming from, and to see if you can help him understand where his leadership 
could grow. But sisters, please do not go talk to the other sisters in the church about your husband's poor leadership. This is not their job. It's not the job of the women in the church to come together when the men aren't leading and set direction for the church or for their home or for their state. All of these areas, remember, should be led by men. A woman might have a righteous spirit in mind when she says, things are being neglected, I'm supposed to help, so let's do this. Now wait a sec. Right when we moved from, I want to help and I want to support to, I'm going to lead, we've crossed the line. Go to God. Go to your husband. Talk about it. Lastly, and under your husband's blessing... I would consider, ask you to consider a Titus 2 relationship. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may instruct the young women in sensibility to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible and pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Same word that Peter uses here, hupotasso so that the word of God will not be slandered. That's from Titus 2, verses 3 to 5. With an imperfect husband, a woman will often want an outlet for the frustration that she feels. This is where an older woman, and I mean particularly older by age, is going to be invaluable. Invaluable. One of the things I love about a lot of the older sisters that I know is that they don't say very much. Now that's actually a tragedy because they're the ones that have the wisdom. But they've learned through years and years and years of walking with a man and watching God work that they don't need to say very much. That they can help when they're required. They're right there. They're doing exactly what God wants them to do. And they're staying in their lane and letting God lead their husbands. Ladies, Consider, with your husband's approval and under his blessing, a Titus II relationship with a woman who can be an encouragement to you. It can include a wise woman in the church, but I would encourage you to consider her age as well. Now, we've looked a lot at that first phrase. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then Peter goes on to give what we might call a worst-case scenario. That even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Who's he talking about when he talks about somebody who's disobedient to the word? This is actually a favorite phrase of Peter's. We've encountered it once already. We're going to encounter it two more times in the letter. From chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected has become the very cornerstone and a stone of a stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this stumbling they were also appointed. That's from chapter two. He's gonna say the same phrase in chapter three, who once were disobedient when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And then in four, verse 17, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God. So the husbands that Peter are talk, is talking about here in chapter 3, verse 1, are lost husbands. They are husbands who do not know the Lord. They've not come to faith in Christ. But 
Were they the majority of husbands? Were the majority of husbands in Peter's church lost? There's no way to know. And to go too far with this is not appropriate. But this we do know. Peter commanded all wives to be submissive to their husbands. He gives the example of a lost husband, representing the worst case scenario, to show the full extent of his command for wives to submit. He reminds the women of their persuasive power apart from using words. This illustration applies to all wives, regardless of their husband's faith or maturity. So ladies, even here, you have a believing husband. You look at this text, even if some don't obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. If a man in the hardness of a lost heart can receive pure undefiled conduct from his wife, which softens that heart and allows him to hear the gospel and be saved. Can a saved man not also be encouraged to change in Christ's likeness because of his wife's conduct? Absolutely he can. Absolutely he can. This is the power of a persuasive life. Peter takes us far down as you can go in terms of a lost husband. And then he uses a little play on words. He says, the word of God, the gospel, has, to this point, had no effect. They've not been obedient to the word. And so Peter says, sister, win him without any words. Win him without any words. The Young's literal translation of this verse is perfect. I love it. In like manner, the wives, be ye subject to your own husbands, that even if certain are disobedient to the word, through the conversation of their wives without the word, they may be one. They take that word conduct to be an ongoing conversation she's having. So that's what ladies want. Like, I want to talk it out. I want to work through it verbally. If I could just tell you how I feel, it would change everything. And what's Peter saying? Girls, your life is conduct. Your life is conversation. It communicates things to him and propels him towards good works. It softens his hard heart. It makes him want to obey. It makes him want to move towards Christ's likeness. Jesus describes the hard-heartedness of a lost man as a thoroughly trodden road that won't take any seed. But his wife's quiet, submissive reflection of her glory towards him is a rototiller to his fallow ground. Let me give you another analogy. The heart of this man is like a car with battery cables that are caked with acid. I don't know if you guys have ever had trouble starting your car. And then you try and get it to turn over, and it's not turned over. You pop the hood. There's this huge mound of, like, green and yellow acid on the positive battery terminal, okay? Now, what do you got to do? You got to get that battery acid off. You got to clean it. And then you got to attach everything back together and hope your battery's still alive. Well, I can tell you, in this case, the gospel has power. It can change his heart. But God's means of softening his heart, of getting that acid off the car battery so that car will turn over, is the quiet, gentle submissiveness of a wife. Now, Chris, how do you do that? Well, I don't know if you've ever taken um, like a Coca-Cola bottle before. You can actually pour Coca-Cola into a container and then let that acid soak in that container. It'll take all the acid off those terminals. You can pull it back out. It's perfectly clean. Ladies, if you'll allow me, you are the 
Coca-Cola to take that acid off a hard-hearted man's heart. You are. That submissive attitude will help to soften even the hardest of stony hearts. What Christian women need to understand is that their strength as a woman is tied to their glory. That is to say that a woman being the glory of the man doesn't just mean that she is a trophy. It doesn't just mean she's a lovemaking tool. It means that the way that God designed women to be beautiful, assisting, helping, supporting, administrating, submitting in reverence is not only attractive, but it's potent. It's powerful. It has power while it works. There's real power there. This is the power that says, thy kingdom come, and it's answered in her conformity to who God made her and to what God restored her to in Christ. This is the same kind of strength as the love your enemies strength. It is the same kind of strength of the last shall be first. It is the same kind of strength that is suffering for righteousness that finds favor with God. And sisters, if it is effective to soften the heart of a man who will not submit to the gospel of Jesus, don't you think it will prove effective as a means to help sanctify your saved husband? Notice the words Peter says, even if. Even if it's this bad. But if it's not that bad, your submissiveness will still be a tool God uses to sanctify your husbands. And sisters, I would say before we move to the last verse, that if you failed often in submissiveness, remember what we just read. By Jesus's wounds, you've already been healed. By Jesus's wounds, all the sin of your life, all the rebellion, all the nasty things you've said to your husband verbally or in your heart have already been atoned for. Jesus already took it to the cross. And because of the healing of his wounds, you can walk in righteousness now. You can live for his glory. You are empowered to submit to even a husband that you don't want to submit to. And as you do that, you find the strength and power to submit to that man and bring a blessing to your household. Well, Peter closes by saying that these men will see not just any kind of conduct, but what the ESV translates respectful and pure conduct. The NIV chooses when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. And the NASB, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. I think that there's something that could be added here to how we see verse 2. Because none of these translations is, I think, helping you to see that what we've got here is not an adjectival phrase. That is that respectful is modifying conduct. But it's actually a prepositional phrase. Tain en phobo, hognain anastrophane humon. Which means, literally, when they see the in fear, pure conduct of you. The conduct is pure, but it's carried out in fear. I quoted this at the beginning of our time this morning. The Legacy Standard Bible has, as they observe your pure conduct with fear. Now, there's a problem, and I mentioned this briefly at the beginning of our time. Aren't we only supposed to fear God? 
Well, the Greek word phobo, fear, in 1 Peter is always directed towards God. We always see it directed towards God. But part of a wife's honoring her husband includes a reverence and deference that is biblically described as fear. It's not the fear that we think of, the fear of, oh no, what's going to happen to me? But it is that right place in relationship, that right place in rank, that assuming of the posture of deference to his leadership. Paul says to wives in Ephesians 5, verse 33, see that the wife respects, it's the same word, fear, phobo, her husband. One theologian called this a healthy apprehension of their displeasure. And I think that's a good definition. There is nothing incongruous with this and fidelity towards God. It is the motivation for pure conduct that she esteems her husband highly and rightly. Now, the next two weeks, we're going to describe in greater detail what this pure, speechless conduct should look like. Next week, we'll be looking at the modest wife. The Greek word here means pure from carnality, chaste, modest, pure from every fault, immaculate, clean. A woman who is chaste but reveres not her husband is what we might call a Karen. A woman who reveres her husband and her conduct is carnal has a loser, a dunce, and a coward for a patriarch. He must lead well and she must follow well. This is what the world hates and what God so loves. This is the way that he created the universe to operate. Well, beloved, as I close, I want to go back to an analogy, but not the fish analogy that I used at the beginning. I'd like to call your minds to the analogy that Peter has used in the previous chapter. He has said that of us, we are like sheep, that we had gone astray, but because of the gospel of Christ and the effectual calling of the Father, we are now the sheep of Jesus. And anyone today here who's heard the words that I've spoken this morning and has been pricked in heart and has realized they are unrepentant of their sin, that though they thought they were in submission, when really it is lostness and darkness and a separation from God, today the offer of Jesus' salvation still stands. All who come to me, I will cast none away. What does he say? Repent and believe the gospel. And if you repent, turning to Christ alone for salvation today, you can be purified and saved and will be sanctified and will be glorified. Jesus is the good shepherd and it is his job to care for and nourish the souls of his sheep. He left them his infallible and inerrant word, which is the perfect standard to which they should conform. He also left them his Holy Spirit, who will guide them into all truth and make them to be like Christ himself. He also intended to shepherd through the agency of godly male leadership in the context of the home and the local church as part of the larger mission of taking dominion of the whole earth. And while taking up the cause of kingdom work here on earth, each one of his sheep have a given role to play. 
When they run from this, they are not just in rebellion against him, but are walking away from the very shepherd who leads them to green pastures, to the place where they will not just have life, but they might have life to the full till it overflows. But he is a patient shepherd. And when his sheep fail, he comes to defend, to rebuke and correct. And then he leads them back to his word to his design and intention for them, only requiring of them what he made them to be and died for so that they might rightly live again. And in his loving, leading voice, he leads us again to the stream and says, this is water. This is water. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son to be our good shepherd that as we wander, as we stray, He constantly brings us back. He leads us and guides us gently, showing us where the life comes from, where it is, and it is in Your Word, and it is a Word that we can trust. And even in the moments when it is hard to be obedient, Your Spirit is there, ready to assist, Your stripes having healed us from the curse that kept us from being obedient to you. We have been healed from the sin we once loved to now begin living in this life the very way that we will live in the kingdom of glory. And we thank you for this. We ask for your comfort, for our failings and our sins. We also ask for your encouragement that we might do what is right and honor you today as we eat, as we commune together, as we seek to be the people of Jesus. Be with our sisters. The world wants to devour them. Would you please protect them? Would you please protect them from the mindset that wants to rule? From the curse that curse which you have freed each of them from in Jesus. Lord, would you help their husbands to be good shepherds, to take care of them, to tell them what the mission of the house is and that they would both together work towards that mission in the roles and with the natures you have given them. We thank you again for this time that we can meet in freedom without any thought of persecution. Lord, make us courageous. If we must suffer one day, help us to be fearless. I pray not only for the men of this church, but also for our women, even now, that they would be given a spirit of bravery. Reminded of your word that says they were not given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. That Peter will command them at the end of this section as he's charged the women to not be fearful, to not fear anything that's frightening. Lord, bless us now as we eat. Bless us now as we fellowship and get to know one another better. Bless Christ the King with a new church home. In Jesus' name, amen.